0: section 5 of rudder grange this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org rudder grange by frank r stockton chapter 3 treating of a novel style of girl part 1 one afternoon as i was hurrying down broadway to catch the 5 o'clock train i met waterford He is an old friend of mine, and I used to like him pretty well. "'Hello,' said he. "'Where are you going?' "'Home,' I answered. "'Is that so?' said he. "'I didn't know you had one.' I was a little nettled at this, and so I said, somewhat brusquely, perhaps, "'but you must have known I lived somewhere.' "'Oh, yes, but I thought you boarded,' said he. "'I had no idea that you had a home.' "'But I have one, and a very pleasant home, too.' you must excuse me for not stopping longer as i must catch my train oh i'll walk along with you said waterford and so we went down the street together where is your little house he asked why in the world he thought it was a little house i could not at the time imagine unless he supposed that two people would not require a large one but i know now that he lived in a very little house himself but it was of no use getting angry with waterford especially as I saw he intended walking all the way down to the ferry with me. So I told him I didn't live in any house at all. "'Why, where do you live?' he exclaimed, stopping short. "'I live in a boat,' said I. A boat? A sort of Rob Roy arrangement, I suppose. Well, I would have not thought that of you. And your wife, I suppose, has gone home to her people?' "'She has done nothing of the kind,' I answered. "'She lives with me, and she likes it very much.' We are extremely comfortable, and our boat is not a canoe or any such nonsensical affair. It is a large, commodious canal-boat. Waterford turned around and looked at me. Are you a deck-hand? he asked. Deck-grandmother, I exclaimed. Well, you needn't get mad about it, said he. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but I couldn't see what else you could be on a canal-boat. I don't suppose, for instance, that you're captain. But I am, said I. Look here, said Waterford. "'This is coming it rather strong, isn't it?' "'As I saw he was getting angry, I told him all about it, "'told him how we had hired a stranded canal-boat and had it fitted up as a house, "'and how we lived so cozily in it, and had called it Rudder Grange, "'and how we had taken a border. "'Well,' said he, "'this is certainly surprising. "'I'm coming out to see you some day. "'It will be better than going to Barnum's.' "'I told him—it is the way of society—that we would be glad to see him, and we parted.' Waterford never did come to see us, and I merely mentioned this incident to show how some of our friends talked about Rudder Grange, when they first heard that we lived there. After dinner that evening, when I went up on deck with Euphemia to have my smoke, we saw the boarder sitting on the bulwarks near the garden, with his legs dangling down outside. "'Look here,' said he. I looked, but there was nothing unusual to see. "'What is it?' I asked. He turned around, and seeing Euphemia, said, "'Nothing.' It would be a very stupid person who could not take such a hint as that, and so after a walk around the garden Euphemia took occasion to go below to look at the kitchen fire. As soon as she had gone, the boarder turned to me and said, I'll tell you what it is, she's working herself sick. Sick? said i, nonsense. No nonsense about it, he replied. The truth was that the boarder was right and I was wrong. We had spent several months at Rudder Grange, and during this time Euphemia had been working very hard, and she really did begin to look pale and thin. Indeed, it would be very wearying for any woman of culture and refinement, unused to housework, to cook and care for two men, and to do all the work of a canal-boat besides. But I saw Euphemia so constantly, and thought so much of her, and had her image so continually in my heart, that I did not notice this until our boarder called my attention to it. I was sorry that he had had to do it. If I were in your place, said he, I would get her a servant. If you were in my place, I replied somewhat cuttingly, you would probably suggest a lot of little things which would make everything very easy for her. I'd try to, he answered, without getting in the least angry. Although I felt annoyed that he had suggested it, still I made up my mind that Euphemia must have a servant. She agreed quite readily when I proposed the plan, and she urged me to go and see the carpenter that very day, to get him to come and partition off a little room for the girl. It was some time, of course, before the room was made, for whoever heard of a carpenter coming at the very time he was wanted, and when it was finished Euphemia occupied all her spare moments in getting it in nice order for the servant when she should come. I thought she was taking too much trouble, but she had her own ideas about such things. If a girl is lodged like a pig, you must expect her to behave like a pig, and I don't want that kind. So she put up pretty curtains at the girl's window, and with a box that she stood on end, and some old muslin and a lot of tacks, she made a toilet-table so neat and convenient that I thought she ought to take it into our room and give the servant our washstand. But all this time we had no girl, and as I had made up my mind about the matter, I naturally grew impatient, and at last I determined to go and get a girl myself. So one day at lunch-time I went to an intelligence office in the city. There I found a large room on the second floor, and some ladies, and one or two men, sitting about, and a small room, back of it, crowded with girls from eighteen to sixty-eight years old. There were also girls upon the stairs, and girls in the hall below, besides some girls standing on the sidewalk before the door. When I made known my business and had paid my fee, one of the several proprietors who were wandering about the front room went into the back apartment and soon returned with a tall Irish woman with a bony, weather-beaten face and a large, weather-beaten shawl. This woman was told to take a chair by my side. Down sat the huge creature and stared at me. I did not feel very easy under her scrutinizing gaze, but I bore it as best I could, and immediately began to ask her all the appropriate questions that I could think of. Some she answered satisfactorily, and some she didn't answer at all, but as soon as I made a pause she began to put questions herself. "'How many servants do you cape?' she asked. I answered that we intended to get along with one, and if she understood her business I thought she would find her work very easy, and the place a good one. She turned sharp upon me and said, "'Have you stationary wash tubs?" I hesitated. I knew our wash tubs were not stationary, for I had helped to carry them about but they might be screwed fast and made stationary if that was an important object. But before making this answer, I thought of the great conveniences for washing presented by our residence, surrounded, as it was, at high tide, by water. "'Why, we live in a stationary wash-tub,' I said, smiling. The woman looked at me steadfastly for a minute, and then she rose to her feet. Then she called out, as if she were crying fish or strawberries, "'Mrs. Blaine!' the female keeper of the intelligence office, and the male keeper, and the thin clerk, and all the women in the back room, and all the patrons in the front room, jumped up and gathered round us. End of section 5